And we are going to move into a, a new tool for living, okay? We've been dealing with uh, uh, a number of them and finish up uh, one last week that was uh, a lot of fun. And uh, this, this week, I, I, my mind kind of took a different track with, uh, with what, as I looked at this tool, I'll, we'll get to what I originally had uh, eventually, but my mind just kind of started going and, and adding to it. But what we're looking at is this right here, a level, a level, very, very important tool and really very basic. Um, how it functions is really fascinating. Um, it, it's, a, it's a level that indicates whether a structure is absolutely horizontal or absolutely vertical or in between, okay? But it's telling us whether it fits that absolute standard in either of those two directions. And it does so by the use of a little bubble. Now, my grandpa used to say, I know I'm in the level because my bubble's in the middle. Okay? And he had this little right here. Uh, so he was on the level pretty much as long as I ever knew him. Um, the bubble got a little bit bigger, I think, over time. But it, uh, anyway, that little bubble. Now, we could talk about, uh, you could kind of take a tangential subject and talk about the plum which is, uh, which is similar to the level, except in one direction and using a different, a uh, little bit different means. But uh, the use of a bubble, to me, is such an ingenious use of nature because the bubble is always going to rise to the highest point when it's encased in fluid, okay? So if you're not familiar with the bubble, there's inside of here, there's one here for the other directions, but inside of that little vial is some liquid, and inside that liquid, they've, they've put an air bubble. And so if this end comes up, that bubble's going to rise to that side. If this end goes up, the bubble's going to rise there. So the goal when you're trying to get something absolutely level is to get those two ends to where that bubble will be right in the middle. Then you know that this end is perf is, meets the standard of this end as well. They, they are sitting on exactly the same plane. They are horizontal. So that's just a very basic uh, natural thing that a, a bubble would rise uh, to the highest point there in liquid. So by building a tool around a basic principle of nature, we can establish something very important, whether one side is higher than the next, especially when both sides being on the same plane is necessary, okay? Sometimes we don't really care if, we, uh, if you buy a field and you're going you're gonna, to uh, pasture some cattle. You don't care whether it's level all the time, whether it's perfectly level. But if you're building a house, you care, right? There are certain things that really matters there. Now, to me, as I thought about that, basic principle uh, used to tell whether something is level, it was a picture of something that God has built into every human being an internal indicator of whether something is level or not, okay? Whether an action is equal to a standard. And what's that inbuilt indicator that we have? It's called a conscience. That's right, the conscience. It's that internal part of us that intrinsically knows there is a right and wrong. Uh, it's your personal internal, and yet it's universal <laughs> amongst all uh, individuals, but you personally have an internal justice system okay, that says, right, wrong. Okay? Everybody does. Everybody does. Now, someone may argue, but everyone's justice system is different. That's really not the point. 
The fact is that we all have a justice system, and that should make us pause. Why does everybody have a justice system? Why does everybody intrinsically, innately know that some things are wrong? Okay? When you hear a story on the news, say, about a child being abused or killed, and, and your heart cries out, that's not right. What is it about you that makes you say that? What, what is it that people just know that? Re- regardless of what church they go to, what religion they espouse, what even worldview they purport to have, you're going to hit certain news stories when your coworkers are going to go, that's just not right. Because whether they agree to, uh, uh, whether they say they believe in relativism or evolution, they still know intrinsically that there is a right and wrong, and they act uh, on that very strongly at times. That is the conscience, the conscience. The word conscience is related to the word conscious, okay, very similar. Uh, they both derive from the Greek word synedesis, uh, which essentially means, you can even see it in the English language, with con knowledge, science with knowledge. So your conscience has something to do with knowledge that you have. One source recognizing both of those aspects uh, defines it this way. Number one, as a perspective, or excuse me, perceptive awareness within oneself. We call that consciousness. He is, um, he's conscious now, meaning he's aware. He has knowledge of his surroundings, okay? That's with knowledge. But then when that knowledge in us helps to say, wait, that doesn't match up over here. Well, that's not right. Oh, that's wrong. That's a conscience, okay? And so it gives the second definition as the faculty of moral consciousness, not physical uh, alertness, but moral consciousness or awareness by which moral judgments relating to right and wrong are made. So um, I want you to I want to look at uh, kind of do a word study here. We're going to look at several passages. Let's start off in 1 Corinthians chapter number eight. 1 Corinthians chapter number eight. As we, uh, in considering the level, think about our internal, uh, uh, natural facet, if you will, like the bubble is just something very uh, natural, very simple, basic that's used to define something so important. 1 Corinthians chapter number eight. Um, And I'm going to start off um, in verse number one. Now, as touching things offered unto idols, we know, notice that, we know, so there's some knowledge, uh, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think he knoweth anything, he knoweth not yet as he ought to know. Um, And so then he says, verse four, as concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifices unto idols... We know, there's a knowledge there. What is it that we know? We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one, okay? So there's a basic theological fundamental knowledge that this idol is just a piece of rock or it's a piece of wood or it's some fashioned silver. It's really nothing, and there's only one God. We're not, it's not, nothing's in jeopardy here because somebody cast something into a human image. Um, he says, so we know that. We know there's only God but one. Verse 5, for though there be many, or for though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, 
of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. In other words, he's the creator. Howbeit, there is not in every man that knowledge. So Paul is saying, we know, we know these basic, certain facts that, you know, that God is the only God, and that these idols are no, are really nothing, okay? But there's not in everyone that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol, unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So he's talking about meat that would be offered to idols, and is it okay to eat that meat? He said, well, it's just meat. It's just a, it was just a, a, a dumb idol, if I could put it in another New Testament term. Um, it, it, it was nothing. We know that it's a, God is God, and this is just meat. But with some people, they have conscience of the idol. What does that mean? Their knowledge um, has to do, it's more focused on the idol, and they lack a certain component of knowledge, so thus our conscience can be educated, and depending on how it's educated affects the decisions that we make. But because of their conscience of the idol, they see it a certain way, and so they're grieved when they eat this meat. So he's going to say, you need to be careful in your use of your conscience that you don't cause someone else to stumble and violate their conscience by saying, well, well, he did it, and even though I still feel bad about it, I'm going to do it anyway. Well, don't do that, okay? Um, but anyway, they have conscience of the idol, okay? Now, 1 Peter 2.19 is going to be similar, but the opposite direction. First Tim, or excuse me, 1 Peter, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, First Peter chapter 2 and verse 18. Let me go to 19, excuse me, verse 19. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Now it's interesting, he doesn't say this is good if a man uh, for conscience sake. Right? Well, maybe kind of what he's saying, but he uses that description of saying, with conscience toward God. In other words, his knowledge, his internal innate capability, his, his justice system is oriented toward God. And with that conscience toward God, because of that conscience, he has to do right, regardless of the trial, regardless of the pressure, regardless of, uh, of the fact he's being um, you know, adverse to social norms. He's, he's going, his, his conscience is oriented toward God, and so he's going to suffer that affliction. He's saying it's just thankworthy. Um, so our, our conscience can be oriented in different directions. Now look at Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. Acts 24 and verse 16. Acts 24 and verse 16, Paul in one of his defenses here, uh, he says, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God. Again, he's got that conscience toward God, but it's void of offense. What does that mean? Well, if the conscience acts as a uh, justice system, then there's been no um, valid 
case, okay, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of justice, justice terms here. If someone sues you, takes you to court, and makes a case against you, he's saying nothing in me makes a case that I'm wrong. I have a conscience void of offense, that my justice system has not um, declared me guilty in, in my actions toward God, my service for God. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 2. If you want to turn to John chapter 8, I'll read you the one in Hebrews. If you turn to John chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 1 says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very uh, image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, speaking of the Jewish sacrifices, the sacrificial system, it, it could never... It said, could never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. So once that sin is dealt with, it shouldn't remain a part of, uh, it shouldn't remain this part of the conscience that's condemning you, condemning you, condemning you. No, I wouldn't have conscience toward those sins. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't carry the knowledge of those sins in the way that I would have when I was unconfessed once I was purged, okay? Now, let's turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And verse number 9. Remember Jesus, uh, they bring in before him a woman caught in the act of adultery. What are you going to do? We're going to stone her right here. What, what, what would the law say that we should do? And remember, he uh, stooped down, wrote on the ground. And they which heard, it's, um, let, me, let me go back just a little bit. So they continued asking him. He lifted up himself and he said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by conscience went out one by one, being at the eldest, even unto the least, into the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Everybody was convicted in their conscience by what he had said. And okay? what did he say? He said, if you're without guilt, cast the first stone. Well, I guess I'm not entirely without guilt. I guess I've done some, I guess I really wouldn't be, oh, maybe I, and, and they were condemned in their own conscience. In their own justice system, they recognized an offense was brought up, okay, which had to be dealt with. They couldn't justly deal with this woman's offense before dealing with their offense. And so you saw it right there in practice that the conscience was offended, if you will. Okay? The conscience was grieved. The conscience was triggered. What was it? It was an educated conscience that says, if you do certain things, they're wrong and you're guilty. Well, they recognized that in themselves, uh, they had been wrong of certain things and were guilty. Um, Romans 2.15 puts it in terminology, which again, kind of brings us back into the courtroom. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul writing about the conscience here, Romans 2 and verse 15, which show the, the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. 
It's like a voice, okay? A voice inside you going, ah, ah, oh, you shouldn't have done that, right? When you walk around and, oh, I, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Nobody's talking to you. Dad's not following you around. You don't hear an audible voice, but something tells you, you shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. You had no right. You overstepped your bounds. You, what is that? That's that internal justice system bearing witness to your actions, okay? It's a conscience. It says, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. It bears witness. Now, uh, Paul used the same terminology in Romans 9.1. He said, my conscience also bearing me witness, okay? It's like I could bring my conscience in as a supportive witness, okay? <laughs> that it's not grieved, it's not testifying against me, but sometimes that witness brought up as, uh, or that conscience brought up as a witness testifies against us, okay? That we are, that we are wrong. Now, in time, we try, we, there, there's two ways to handle this, we say we either handle it God's way, he, he, uh, the conscience rises up and says, you're wrong, and then what do I do? And it's very simple, very simple. If we would get a hold of this spiritual truth, <laughs> we could live in a lot more peace. Uh, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, okay? Um, uh, remember the confessing of a sin versus the covering of it, okay, um, in Proverbs. So, there's the uh, simply confessing. What's confessing? God, I agree with you. You're right. That witness is true. I, I, I plead guilty to it. And then uh, I recognize the sacrifice of Christ has, has paid for that. And I, I, I re- you know, request a restoration of fellowship based on the sacrifice of Christ. Okay? Confession. Very simple. Um, maybe not easy. Um, because it's so, it works against our pride. Okay, but, okay, we're such proud people. But if we would just learn to say, God, you're right, confess, peace is back, right? Or here's the other, so there's confession. Over here, there's, well, but actually, if you kind of look at it like, and you think about, because this guy, well, but if I'd have done, and, and then you start to make all these, and you start to make this case and this logic that works around, what do you call that? Excuses, self-justification, right? The things that we can justify in our own human minds is scary, the way that we justify it. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, maybe that a little bit in, in the morning message, but uh, when, when we do that, um, then what is happening? We're trying, in some ways, to re-educate, reorient the conscience so that it won't bother us or won't bother us as badly, okay, by, uh, by feeding it false information or twisted information. Because remember, a conscience is with knowledge, what knowledge am I giving it? Am I, am I giving it a half-truth and a twisted thought over here in order to sort of build its case? Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I think we started there. Howbeit, there is not in every man that knowledge, for some with 
conscience of the idol unto this hour, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak. Now that brings in another concept, and we're going to touch on that just in a minute. Their conscience being weak is defiled. Two ver- or three verses later, for if any man see thee which hast knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols. Two verses later, but when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Well, how do you change that? So he's got this weak conscience, and I don't want to wound him, Uh, but are we supposed to govern our whole lives after other people's conscience? Well, that's another discussion. But how do you change somebody's conscience? Well, I would say you educate them, right? You feed their conscience with appropriate knowledge. How How did Paul develop his conscience? He said, we have this knowledge. Where did he get that knowledge? We learned it somewhere, right? And so as we disciple people and grow them, I'd imagine that it would build and help fill out their conscience. But in the moment, uh, it's probably not going to work to just say, hey, well, listen, you need to understand this, um, that I know something that you don't know, and boom, 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 I'm going to do it, because they're not going to grapple with that that fast. They're not going to be able to take on that new equilibrium, okay? Um, Let me skip down here. Um, 1 Corinthians 10 deals with it in four different verses. Speaking of this issue of other men's conscience and things like that. But uh, 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 12, he says, For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience. You can really rejoice in having a good conscience. He says, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you. Our conscience knows that. We have the knowledge of the purity of our ministry to you, and we rejoice in that testimony, that we have a good conscience. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.19, holding faith and a good conscience. This is important. Uh, so you can't just kind of make up your own morals. You can't, um, you know, cut corners or do shady deals here as long as the work of God is getting done. You've got to do right and have a good conscience. That's very important. And he says, uh, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. Then in, uh, in Hebrews 10.2, we dealt with that. So let me just touch on this before we move on. Types of conscience. We talked about simply the conscience. And then we began to see in 1 Corinthians the weak conscience, that you could wound the weak conscience of someone else. The Bible talks about a good conscience, as we saw in Timothy, um, a good conscience. And let me turn to another verse on good before I move past that. 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, you may recognize this, but sanctify, set apart the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience. So there's apologetics. You know, people kind of use that as the as sort of the theme verse for apologetics. In other words, know what you believe. and Be able to answer somebody who asks you, hey, why do you have that hope? Why don't you think like other people think? 
What is, it, what is it you see that other people don't see that allows you to just kind of walk through the day with some sort of a surety and, and confidence and, and joy that other people don't have? Are you ready to give an answer? Can you, can you tell them why in relatively articulate terms? Um, so he says, you need to be ready to give an answer with meekness. In other words, be gentle with people. It's, it doesn't, it, it's not, a, it's not a, a badge to be brash. Okay, um, he says uh, with with meekness, and I'm trying to find my, my place here. Um, and fear, okay, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience. What what a foundation! What a remember what the conscience does? It bears witness. What a confirmation of what you're saying when you can say it with a good conscience. He says, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. What's going to hold you up when somebody says, yeah, well, he's just wicked. Yeah, he actually wants this. What he actually does is this. What argues against that? Do you have to go, somebody, please stand up for me. Somebody, say a good word. It's nice. It should be nice if somebody did and told the truth. But internally, you have a conscience that says, I know the truth. I know your ministry. I know your mindset. I know what you believe. And I know that what you're saying, you're saying sincerely that these things are true. They're impugning your character over here, but you have a good conscience. And that's very important in the sharing of your testimony. So the Bible talks about a good conscience. In 1 Timothy 3.9, he talks about a pure conscience. Okay, let me read that, that verse for you. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, a pure conscience. So there's good conscience, there's a pure conscience, but then we read in 1 Corinthians about a weak conscience. Now look at Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. I kind of put these in order of what I feel like is a a downward motion of the conscience. Um, Titus chapter 1, verse 15. Unto the pure... All things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. So your conscience can be defiled. It can be dirtied. It can be sullied. Hmm, that's interesting. Well, if your conscience basically means the knowledge that you have that kind of builds your justice system and the structure that either confirms or condemns you in the thing that you're doing, it can somehow be dirtied or sullied in the way. It can be negatively affected by the thought process of the world so that it doesn't operate correctly. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't stay, remain pure. Okay? First uh, Timothy 4.2 goes so far then as to say uh, that there's a seared conscience. It talks about um, the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Now we get the picture, right? If, you, if you've done um, branding, right? Or if you've cooked a steak, 
uh, way I used to like to cook a steak is you, you get the grill really hot, and then you throw on the steak, and it's only on there for a matter of seconds, and then you flip it again, and then maybe turn it down. What, what am I doing? I'm searing both sides of the steak uh, to kind of trap in the juices there and then cook the steak. But what does searing do? Searing kind of makes something hard, doesn't it? When you're burnt and then that, and that scab comes and, that, and that, uh, that, that wound and that scar, and once it's seared, it's not as tender. It's not as uh, alert. It's not as sensitive to the touch as it used to be. So when a conscience is, had something, so, so, something put against it such that it renders it hard and insensitive, okay, it's a seared conscience. Uh, Ron, did you have your hand up? Yes. I don't know if I'd say seared, but it's educated in a different way. Maybe it's uh, sensitive to different things. And I think that's uh, to restate if our live stream's going now. We were having technical difficulties earlier. But Ron brings up the fact that we say we have a clear conscience. And yet, because of a past, a background, we may have a lot of educational baggage. And I don't mean like you went to kindergarten educational. I just mean things you've learned over the years and you've been exposed to that have inputted into your conscience. Um, and so while we might be distorted in our conscience, yet we have a clear conscience. And we do seek out of that, I think, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where people had a conscience of the idol. It wasn't a seared conscience per se, I don't think, but it was maybe a, a, it was weighted a certain direction. It was oriented to, uh, uh, to maybe the wrong thing uh, yet, I think they'd say they wanted a clear conscience, so they were going to stay away from the meat so they could have a clear conscience, yet um, maybe, but not educated, of course, to the point, to, to Christian maturity. John? Mm-hmm. That's a good, uh, good point, too, and I didn't put that one down, but he said that, he said an injured conscience. He says, lest you wound their weak conscience. Um, that is similar to searing uh, in a sense where you wound somebody's conscience. Good point. Um, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. And maybe that kind of goes to what you're saying there too, is that there was an evil conscience and yet there's been a purification process. If we've been saved and repented, um, uh, then then we're sensitive again, and yet uh, I still think that there's a process of educating the conscience. Yes, Rick. Mm-hmm. 
that is a very good question, Rick. Um, he's asking the question, so what about people with a false conscience? And again, you're talking about a different kind of conscience. Um, my question, my bigger question is, when we look at the teaching of Scripture, is, uh, is, is are we talking about believers, offending believers versus offending non-believers, okay? However, even in, uh, in Acts chapter 15, when they said... Uh, Look, do we, have to, do we have to basically be like a Jew to be saved? I mean, do we have to be circumcised to be saved? No. No, we don't. But, James said, but there's still a lot of people around that, you know, look highly to the Jewish law. And if I could put it in my words, let's not unnecessarily offend them. Okay? Um, in other words, you know, refrain from this, refrain from that. Um, certain things are immoral. Other things are an offense to them. For instance, if you're going to have a, uh, a Jew over, right? Uh, a Hebrew. I think they prefer Hebrew. Um, if you're going to have a Hebrew over and, uh, and they don't eat ham or whatever, and you just kind of whip out a ham sandwich. All right. Let's pick something else uh, to eat, okay? Um, so interesting question. I'd have to think more about that uh, as far as, because, I mean, you, we could take that a thousand different questions as to people's conscience. And, and it's true and, and let me say, you say, you know, there's a vegan conscience, you know, that you have these different social movements. There is a social conscience. If I could say this, you know, all of society has a conscience. There's sort of a collective and there's sort of individual. And culture is trying to build your kid's conscience or destroy it. Okay, I mean, they're trying to teach them the right and the wrong. And this is where it's just, yeah, one of those things you can just go on and on about, um, that as much as they state, um, well, that's your truth, you know? Everybody should just live and let live. Give us liberty. You're wrong to think that. Wait, wait, What? So in, in the moment that they say, I don't believe, I don't believe that there is a, a truth. And by the way, you're wrong. Well, you can't say both of those things back to back. Because if you're wrong, you think that there's a truth by which I'm wrong. And on, on your truth system, you're judging me to be universally wrong. Well, I can't be universally wrong if there is no universal truth. Okay, so, so the point is they're trying, they know there's a right and wrong because they want to stuff you into their right. And they want to call you wrong. And, and this morality stuff and this, um, you know, this uh, prudish, uh, um, what's the word? Abstinence, right? Abstinence? Come on! That's not the culture. Let your kids have fun. What are they doing? They're training the conscience. They're trying to do. You're stuck back in here. Whatever their arguments are, they're training the conscience. We have every right, really the moral responsibility, to educate the conscience of our children and to recognize that um, we've got to do this. It takes me to Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, I believe it is. Keep thy heart with all diligence... For out of it are the issues of life. And as I understand that, basically, guard your heart because your heart determines the boundaries of life. And when something affects the way you think, all of a sudden your boundary changes. And when you adopt a certain philosophy, you move the fences. Now, it might move them into very dangerous places. It might move them into ridiculously safe spaces, whatever it is. 
But your heart establishes the boundaries of life, so you'd better be careful of what you let influence your heart. Okay? Uh, and that is, what is that? Guarding our heart. It's kind of maintaining a proper conscience. Yes? Yes. Yes. <laughs> you are an offense. To <laughs> right. Right. Yes, uh, that, yes. John brings up the fact that having left the Amish, for decades they've dealt with that, uh, with that question, that issue of, okay, everything we do, of course, is somewhat of an offense to them because they didn't want us to leave, okay? Um, that we're not accepted of them. But at what point are we unnecessarily offending them by wearing this or doing this or whatever if we're going to a funeral or to visit some family? Um, where is the line of where I'm allowed to be me versus where I don't want to offend them? And that's, that's a, it's, a diff- it's a huge discussion that we could have. But coming back to this idea of the level, is the level just uses this very simple concept of a bubble and liquid, right? It just like, oh yeah, somebody just thought to encapsulate that thing that's always been true. It's just the way God designed it. And they put it into a tool to regulate and to figure out when things were on the level. Um, and in our lives, we can recognize, if, if you want to kind of put it this way, that God's put a bubble in there. And, and we use that bubble to determine whether we're on the level. But the thing is, we have to be careful about how the conscience is educated. Okay? Um, and, of course, it needs to be built right here. But for years, and really probably since nearly the beginning of time, um, people have tried to educate the conscience different ways because it's either confession or self-justification, okay? And so society has a whole plethora of ways to re-educate your conscience. But even sometimes within fundamentalism, we've, I think, over-educated the conscience, okay, or made people sensitive to things they didn't need to be sensitive, didn't need to be sensitive about, or there was original reason why, hey, you better be careful of this, and it turned into a rule, and it turned into this rigid, steadfast, somehow determiner of your spirituality, um, and now we have to step back and go, whoa, 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 and it's not that we don't think that there's any point or merit of, of certain boundaries and fences in our lives, but it's about the significance that's been put on them, you know? Um, so anyway, it just, and, and, that, and it even seems to go culture to culture. I mean, I say culture to culture. It is culture to culture, but I mean generation to generation. You know, pastor talks about when he was young, they preached against, was it, wire rim glasses. Well, I've never heard anybody preach against wire rim glasses, but that was a generational thing, right? Um, or or bell-bottom britches or whatever, okay? And that's going to come back around again. <laughs> um, uh, but 
the generations. We're going to say, and what are they saying? That identifies with this. Right, yeah, we be, better be careful with our identities. Better be careful with the, the message that we're communicating. But sometimes then we l- attach it to one specific thing and uh, we get into trouble. Ron? Interesting. So you're saying that uh, where it used to be liberty license, now they're clamping down on everything. Um, and uh, it's just, uh, it's almost, uh, maybe I shouldn't be overly trivial about it, but it just gets comical in the culture, you know, that there's so much over which to be offended, supposedly, you know, that ought to grieve you and lines that you shouldn't cross that basically you can't move, okay? Can't hardly breathe. Uh, without offending somebody or saying something normal. Um, 